A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin, and of course you would be right, but then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. Today we'll be joined by Ross Hendry. Ross is the Chief Executive of CARE. He's also a former Labour parliamentary candidate. We're going to be talking to Ross about civility in politics and his work also in equipping young Christian leaders for the future. But first, the government has just published its first ever NHS long-term workforce plan against a backdrop of huge waiting times for A&E and operations, more than 112,000 vacancies across the NHS in England and pay strikes by multiple branches of the workforce. It is a welcome aim to ensure that more staff are trained and retained to meet the increasing needs of an ageing population and following the huge demands placed on the health service by the COVID pandemic. Indeed, this may be a rare example of some long-term planning. A lack of long-term planning by governments of all colours is one reason why our public services are creaking at the seams. Politicians tend to look to the next day's headlines or the next general election, seeking quick fixes that will boost poll ratings rather than setting out strategies that might not reveal their benefits for another 10 or 20 years. It's especially difficult to justify longer term projects in the light of high inflation, a strain on personal finances and a possible recession ahead. Meanwhile, private companies focus on their profit margins. We've seen this most recently with Thames Water prioritising dividends to shareholders rather than longer term renovations to its leaky and inadequate network and resulting in the discharge of vast amounts of sewage into our seas, rivers and lakes. But wise leaders build for beyond their time. They do not always expect to see the outcome of their endeavours. I'm always impressed by the vision of those who built our great cathedrals. Many took decades, even centuries to build, using hundreds of craftsmen and workers who passed their trade from one generation to the next. Milan Cathedral took 577 years to complete between 1388 and 1965. Cathedrals were built for the glory of God as a form of worship by Christians in past ages. Christians today should also be seeking to reflect the glory of God in the way that we steward the resources we are given. So today, I want us to think about how we might pray for governments and private companies to conduct their stewardship responsibilities in ways that will benefit future generations. Examples might include the creation of a sustainable system of social care, after governments over the last two decades have marked it as too difficult and left it for their successors to pick up. Do we really have to reach crisis point before decisions are made? Or let's consider climate change. The cost of cutting carbon emissions, switching to clean energy and seeking to keep the Earth's temperature below a tipping point of no return have been dodged and fudged by politicians across the globe. Yet we are seeing more and more extreme weather events as a result. Almost every area of public policy would benefit from longer term planning. In the education system, do we want to prepare our young people to be good citizens or simply to pass exams? In energy policy, will we ever grasp the nettle of harnessing our vast reserves of tidal energy? As more and more people are displaced from their homes across the planet due to war, persecution and the changing climate, 
when will we be brave enough to sit down with other governments to devise a long-term plan to manage and resettle them? We need leaders who are prepared to look for solutions to these problems rather than constantly reacting to the symptoms, applying sticking plasters and hoping that something will turn up. The polls tell us that people are increasingly losing hope in any politicians to fix the issues that are besetting us. After years of Brexit divisions followed by the pandemic and the current cost of living crisis, we need to offer optimism and hope for a weary generation. And as Christians, we can draw on the vast wisdom and strength that God promises those who call on him. He calls us to work with him towards the time when he will set all things right. We've all heard of the acronym NIMBY, not in my backyard, but perhaps the blight of political leadership is NIMTO, not in my term of office. So let's pray for God to raise up a generation of leaders for such a time as this, for those who are not affected by NIMTOism, but who are prepared to look at the details and hold conversations about the complexity and the costs, and who are able to sell the long-term benefits to a population that is losing faith in everything. Let's finish by making 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, our prayer for this week. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. So to this week's guest, Ross Hendry is the Chief Executive of Care and he joins us now. Ross, how are you? I'm very well, Tim. Looking forward to the summer. Yeah, me too. Me too. But before that, we've got the important matter of this week's podcast. Thanks for joining us. And now we always start off, and I think it's important that we do really, uh, by exploring our guests' faith. Um, So how did you become a Christian? Where and how did that happen? Well, I grew up in a small village uh, on the edge of an old industrial town in southwest Wales. Uh, Welsh speaker, uh, Welsh teachers of mum, um, dad had his own business uh, from Scotland, um, grieved the fact they always support Wales in rugby, not Scotland. Um, but I grew up going to a typical Welsh Baptist, Welsh speaking Baptist chapel where the children were trooped out before the sermon started. And I never actually heard the gospel until I was 16 mm. when we had a new minister and the deacon said, time for us to be baptised. He said, I'm not baptising him unless he knows what he's going to be baptised for. So he, over the course of the year, led me to Christ. And uh, I knew what the decision was after the first couple of weeks. I thought at the age of 16, I had all these intellectual arguments against Christianity, um, but I didn't. Um, and realized it, there was both a rationale and reasoning there, but also it was a step of faith. So I was baptized by full immersion in icy cold water when I was 17 years old. No real fellowship at that time until I came to university in London when I joined a church called All Souls Langham Place. They had a very good, rich teaching, Bible teaching history. Joined the student work there and it opened up a whole new world of both biblical learning and fellowship for me. Amazing. Now, at some point along that journey, I'm assuming politics reared its head and it became a thing that you were led to to pursue. At what stage in your life did that happen? Well, I think that politics for a long time in my life was a parallel world that ran alongside and I didn't realise overlapped. And I didn't realise how much my political views influenced my view of faith and my experience of faith and my understanding of the Lord. Um, And I don't think that I understood quite fully how my faith impacted my politics. 
um, until probably I was a student and getting more involved with organizations like UCCF and CARE um, and others where for the first time people were talking about politics and faith, not as two separate entities. Mm. So I'd always been involved in politics and interested in politics from debating societies in school. Um, I'm very lucky going to Comprehensive where there was an English teacher who was passionate about debating um, and so got me into that. I think also people thought that because I was reasonably intelligent and mouthy and argumentative, uh, that politics one day would be an opportunity and a, and a career for me. So you were drawn to the Labour Party. Uh, was that something that was the product of where you were brought up or was it something that you made a decision about when you're at university? Well, my hometown has actually created and sort of grown some quite prominent conservative MPs. Michael Howard, for example, comes from the same hometown as I do. I think you grew growing up when I did where I did, seeing the effects of the 1980s deindustrialization mm. of the old um, Welsh mining valleys and old industrial towns. My Llanelli was a tin plate town. And when the steelworks closed, and the mines closed, it was truly awful. It was the heart ripped out of those communities. Mm. Um, the dignity that people had from that work um, was taken away from them. I think that you either sort of lurched left or right um, in, in politics. I think my experience of seeing close hand poverty and communities, as I said, hollowed out, um, meant that I felt a deep sense of injustice Mm. um uh for those communities and that something had to be done and that and somehow politics was both the cause and the solution to those communities and so you found yourself on the Labour Party's approved parliamentary candidates panel how did that come about yeah well I, I went to university I always thought I was going to be a barrister partly again because I was mouthy and argumentative <laughs> um and in the end I didn't go into law um but I started work at the at a think tank at the London School of Economics, where I'd done two degrees. Mm. Um, after that, I realised I didn't want to be an academic, so I went to work for a local government organisation and lobbied for the London Mayor's Bill on behalf of the councils. Realised that really wasn't my my bag, sort of talking a lot about bus lanes and potholes. Um, so then went to Don't work, knock it. <laughs> then went to work from there for a trade union called Unison. Mm -hmm. um, and two parallel processes happened. One was. In, in back home, in uh, there were two constituencies where I'd grown up. Uh, one became an ultimate shortlist and the other didn't. Both were, had approached me about running. At the same time, Unison colleagues were saying, we think you'd potentially be a really great MP. Would you think about putting your name forward? So I went through the Unison process of being able to nominate me onto the approved Labour list. And um, again, maybe too long a story for this podcast, but it was remarkable how... I didn't know whether it was the right thing to do, but sometimes the Lord makes bumpy, windy roads, very smooth and straight and even downhill. Mm. And so there were a series of events that happened where I was exploring whether to run, put my name forward for the Labour candidate for Carmarthen Easton to Neville. And I come to the conclusion, I thought, probably not, because there were sort of four, five, six people ahead of me in the queue. And over the course of the weekend, when I was praying about it, um, five of those people phoned me up and said, <laughs> we're not running and we want to back you. <laughs> um, and so I ended up with a ridiculously easy, straightforward process of being selected, mm -hmm. embarrassingly so, really. Mm -hmm. 
And so I felt that the Lord wanted me to run. And so and my my wife and I grappled with this. Um, we've always felt I was to run, but we never felt the Lord. You know, I never got that moment where the Lord's telling me I'm going to be an MP or the Lord's telling me I'm going to be prime minister. Mm. But we knew it was the right thing to run the race. Mm. Now, obviously, your experience in the election itself in 2005 um, wasn't the most comfortable one. Um, you're up against Plaid Cymru, uh, eventually Plaid Cymru uh, was successful in holding on to that seat. Um, and your faith was very much a thing that the opposition used against you. How did that happen and how did you feel about it? I sort of went in thinking that... Um, it wasn't convenient for me to be an evangelical Christian. Um, it was around the time when, you know, the famous, often misquoted Alistair Campbell, we <laughs> don't do God. Mm. It was also the height of the opposition to the Iraq war. Um, and so the initial accusation against me was that I was a London Blairite uh, pro-war dropped in <laughs> sort of to the constituency without any roots there. It's a very Welsh, traditional Welsh-speaking community, set of communities. And so um, almost the worst thing you could be accused of as being English mm-hmm. uh, in, in that community. So that was the initial attack um, and opposition against me. Um, even though I'd grown up in the constituency, my parents lived there. Um, I think it's difficult because if you're a Welsh speaker, um, the natural assumption is you're going to be applied Cymru supporter. And so growing up in a Welsh-speaking chapel, going to Welsh medium education, lots of Welsh-speaking friends, family friends, et cetera. I think part of the difficulty was is that um, there were lots of effectively lies said about me um, and rumours started about me that friends of the family knew were wrong and uh, not the truth. And yet they either went along with it or were silent bystanders. And I think that's quite hurtful for mm your family, as a candidate, Mm. you're immune to a lot of it. You expect it or you're immune to it or you're protected from it. Your family gets it quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, And certainly after the English accusation, the next accusation was that I was a... Um, an evangelical Christian, therefore by implication, or sometimes there were rumours sort of spread that directly that I was homophobic, uh, I was anti-gay. That was particularly the sort of a strong issue because um, my the, the the MP that held the seat, um, who my opponent was, um, was Adam Price, and uh, he's same-sex attracted. Um, and so it was seemingly... There were certainly um, there were rumours and suggestions uh, that I was uh, running uh, a campaign that was highlighting um, sort of the, the that difference between the the two of us. Um, I, from what was said afterwards, um, the evidence for that was uh, non-existent or flimsy at best. Um, and refer to things like pictures of my wife and I and things like that, you know, therefore <laughs> highlighting a, or suggesting a particular thing. Now, I, you know, I, I've no idea how much um, my my opponent, Mr. Price, knew about that. I don't know. But certainly, you know, there are things that go on in, in campaigns that are unsavory um, mm. at, at all levels. And, you know, I, I was at the time, I was in my early 30s, you like to think that politics is like, like the West Wing, and you realise sometimes it's more like the House of Cards. A mucky business with Tim Farron.
We're talking to Ross Hendry, who's the chief executive of CARE. Uh, Ross, that experience in Carmarthen East and being effectively campaigned against and your Christianity being used as a weapon to to beat you with, uh, that that was the last time you stood for Parliament. Um, I'm, am I right to assume that that experience was something that made you think, do you know what, that's enough? I think I'm wise enough in knowing how the Lord places people in particular places, never to say never. But mm. I'm 99.9% certain that um, I won't, won't run again. And I think that's partly because I looked very pragmatically um, and practically um, at the fact that I worked for a trade union. And I thought at the time, the general secretary of my trade union had far more hard and soft power over public policy um, than I would ever have had as a backbench MP. Um, and on one level, far less accountability and scrutiny <laughs> um, to the public gaze and, and eye. So I thought, are there ways in which I can actually impact public policy and communities and the sites that I live in for the good mm. um, without putting myself and really more importantly, actually, my family through the bill on yeah. that. So, yeah. yeah. So I think that experience must have had an impact on something which has definitely become a passion of yours in the last few years about civility in the public square, about how we treat one another when we don't agree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've I found it increasingly frustrating that if you've got strong views, um, then you're somehow meant to either dilute them in order to be civil or that you've got to become more and more strident and adversarial and polemic in order to be heard over the din of, of everybody else. I just fun, fundamentally disagree that that's a Christ-like way to go about mm. discourse and loving my neighbour well, is to, I don't love my neighbour well by shouting at them, and I don't love my neighbour well by skimming over, diluting, or even denying what I really passionately believe in. Mm. Um, and so there must be a way in which there's a there's a theologian in America called Richard Mao, who has a lovely phrase called convicted civility, that there are mm. people in the, in the public square who have got strong convictions, but they're not very civil, people who are very civil, but they haven't got very strong convictions. But as Christians, mm. we're called to be people of convicted civility. Yeah. And I believe passionately that that is the way forward for Christian engagement in the public square. And we hope through role modelling and through witnessing faithfully that that will be a magnetic force for others to be drawn in and say, yeah, that's what that's the public square we want as well. But even if they don't, mm. um, our call to faithfulness in the public square means that we are still going to be that kind of person. And fast forwarding to the work that you do now, your chief executive of CARE, you do a number of things, and we'll talk to you about that uh, more generally in a moment. But as you work with young people predominantly um, through the internship programme that you run in Westminster, many of those people have and will go on to serve in politics and the front line themselves. Mm. I guess part of your experience must feed through them as we try to lead young people who are going into politics to themselves accept that call to convicted civility. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, care care works. I, I always say that care does three things. It works in politics with politicians and policymakers. It works with churches to think about how they are engaged and informed about politics. But we also grow leaders of virtue for the public mm. square. Um, and I believe passionately 
and investing in the next generation to say that they could be better leaders, leaders of greater virtue as well as skill and talent than the last generation. I'm always hopeful that they can stand on our shoulders, that we may not be giants, but they can at least stand on our shoulders to sort of to, to, to go forward. Um, and I think that hopefully not just sharing book knowledge um, or um, sort of intellectual wisdom, but actually just sharing life with them and mm. sharing my experience to say, you can have rubbish thrown at you. You don't have to throw rubbish back. Amen. Oh, and do, do you think that when it comes to uh, the generation of, of young people looking at politics who are Christians through UCCF Politics Network, through CARE and other outfits as well, do you think, contrary to maybe uh, many people's opinion, it might actually end up being a bit easier for them than it's been for us? Yeah, I think that, I think it's remarkable that um, evangelical Christian students right now, and I'm, I'm using the E word, even though it's loaded and stereotyped and stigmatized in many ways, but I think sort of, I think evangelical students, what they have to put up with at university sometimes and the going through the furnace of um, of what they've been through in the public square already to some extent, I think has given them lots of life lessons um, about uh, going forward. I also think that they are incredibly passionate about being authentic and open about their faith. So I think there are people like the, the Kate Forbes and even yourself, Tim, that they look up to and say, there's somebody who's willing to put their faith out there in the public square and to say, yeah, that's who I am. Take me or leave me, but this is who I am right through. And I think their passion for sharing the gospel, their passion for social justice um, is incredible. I always think that there are two dangers when you're a Christian in the public square. Either you can fill your head with the, the knowledge and think about the hard skills that you need to think that to get forward in politics, mm. And your heart, your heart becomes hard and cold, or you can be all heart and no actually head knowledge or skills, and understand that actually being a faithful, authentic witness doesn't mean being uh, leaving your brain uh, at home. Um, and the balance is: how do we bring our heart and our mind? How do we bring our mind, body, and soul to the public square, and not just one third or two thirds of that equation? Ross, a wonderful way to finish. We have run out of time, but that's a great full stop. It's been a real pleasure to have you with us. And thank you for your, for your service um, in heading up care and the great work you do there. And indeed for being so open and honest with us and sharing your experiences over the last few years. See you again, Ross. Thanks, Tim. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. Drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk and there's a very strong chance that I'll be answering it on an episode over the next few weeks. This week, Matt in Lincolnshire has been in touch and he says this. Tim, I'm curious to know how you balance complex long-term issues or the need to make decisions that might be popular with the need to show progress and appeal to voters who seem to have an increasingly short-term outlook. Great question, Matt, and it's something I think about a lot and rebuke myself over too. I think this has always been a pressure for 
politicians in democratic societies uh, where there is the election that you've got to get past in order to carry on in your roles. There is a real temptation um, for us to think about the short term, just to look for popularity so that we win and can carry on uh, and to carry on as MPs or in government. Yet at the same time, we want to do things which are beyond our time that will serve the generations to come. Big projects don't get done in one five year period. It might take a decade or more in order to complete. And I think from a Christian point of view, it's perfectly legitimate for us to present ourselves to the electorate in an honest but winsome way in order to seek their approval to win an election and then to make a difference. But if we're going to love our neighbour, who is our neighbour? Well, Jesus tells us our neighbour is everyone. And that includes everyone we've never met. Therefore, meaning everyone who's not been born yet, the generations to come. And so for Christians in politics, it is right also to look to the long term. And I've always said you can do both. There's nothing wrong and nothing that stops us uh, doing things that are popular in the now. Uh, hopefully they are good things. Um, and then also doing those things which have a long term uh, lead time and that will do good in the long term future. And I think the electorate is increasingly weary of short termism and may actually be just in the right mood to listen to those who actually have a plan for the future. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the work of care. and We thank you for the work of all those who involve themselves as Christians in the business of politics and current affairs. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for those Christians who are involved in politics. And we pray for greater levels of what Ross Hendry calls convicted civility, people of strong political beliefs who will act graciously to one another. We particularly pray for Christians who would be salt and light in the way they conduct themselves, um, principled, uh, decent and gracious. We pray for more of that. We pray that that kind of behaviour in our politics by Christian politicians would draw people to the gospel. We thank you also for the work being done uh, with CARE and the Politics Next Network and, and other organisations helping to equip and build young Christian leaders for the future. We pray for them individually, that you strengthen them, uh, give them wisdom and show them the direction in which they should go. We pray for leaders who would be faithful to you and who would think of the long term, think of the generations to come and make decisions that are wise. Uh, and Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. <laughs>